Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You actually stuck a dollar bill in there because it was a dollar and you don't actually pick it, pick it up typically consciously, but there it is sitting there speaking to your brain mid-liminally. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 225. Dollar bills hidden in photos of lettuce to encourage you to buy more sandwiches. Strategically placed odor bubbles meant to trap you in baked goods fever dreams. Mid-liminal faces and popular corporate logos to make them more memorable and appealing. From specially dyed soups to exogenous attention manipulation experiments to measures meant to harness your propensity for doom scrolling. In this episode, we are exploring the world of neuromarketing with two experts on this topic, two professors who study, teach, and write about the on-purpose, based-on-research, psychology, and neuroscience behind nudging you toward the thoughts, feelings, and behaviors brands would prefer. Their names, Prince Guman and Matt Johnson. My name is Prince Guman. I am a professor at Fulton University. I'm also a co-author of the book Blindsight and co-founder of the company Pop Neuro, where we teach people how to apply neuromarketing to business. And I'm Dr. Matt Johnson, also professor at uh, Holt International Business School. Uh, my background initially is in cognitive neuroscience. Now I use that perspective to better understand the consumer experience. I uh, am the co-author of Blindsight, The Mostly Hidden Ways Marketing Reshapes Our Brains, and also the co-founder of Pop Neuro. My, so my background is in marketing and entrepreneurship. So um, it, it, funny story is Matt and I graduated roughly around the same time from undergrad, and he decided to hide out the, the global financial crisis by going into grad school and getting his PhD in cognitive neuroscience. And I, I had to make a living the old fashioned way. And uh, jokes aside, you know, early on in my career, I was able to do a lot of, uh, I worked at startups for the first half of my career and the second half was larger companies. And I got to test a lot of things as you get to at startups. And, and I, early on in my career, read a ton of uh, psych and neuroscience research and then got to turn that into AV tests that month, that week. And I did that for 10 plus years. And, uh, and so, my, yeah, my, back, my background is applied neuroscience and applied psych in startups and uh, larger companies in the marketing context. And that's when Matt and I synced up and out came the idea for the book and teaching this to professionals out loud as opposed to having a playbook I use personally. Matt, you want to add something to that? Yeah, so uh, it kind of dates us a little bit, but yeah, as Prince mentioned, we, we graduated about the time of the global financial crisis, uh, doing a, a PhD and sort of hibernating uh, while the economy sorted itself out. Sounded like a pretty good idea. Um, plus, uh, for me, I've always just been extremely curious about why we do what we do, really fascinated by uh, sort of what makes us tick that led me to obviously do an undergraduate degree in psychology and then continue on and, and do a, a PhD specializing in cognitive neuroscience of really understanding uh, the, the neural architecture that supports processes like perception, uh, the, the conjuring of, of subjective experience, and then how we convert experience into memories and how that allows us to, to learn and grow through time. Um, so that was my uh, sort of academic focus. 
Uh, after I graduated, I, I went into business consulting for uh, a few years, and that led me to really uh, sort of understand that there's such a rich, I think, underappreciated connection between neuroscience and business, uh, particularly in marketing. And it was around that same time that Prince and I uh, reunited in, in San Francisco after about 12 years apart. And uh, we realized we had quite a bit in common around this general area of neuromarketing, consumer neuroscience, as Prince mentioned, this led to us teaching together, us to writing the book together, and uh, ultimately us to, uh, to be speaking to you right now, David. So Guman and Johnson, they have this new book out called Blind Sight. You probably heard them say that. And it's all about being smarter consumers who are empowered to make better decisions after taking this giant, intricate, detailed tour of a showcase of all the less obvious ways marketing, advertising, venues, restaurants, shopping malls, casinos, social media companies, billboards, emails, monthly boxes, everything, how everything, how everything that's attempting to make money uh, off of your behavior uh, these days knowingly uses neuroscience and psychology to affect that behavior what they would call your consumer behavior, which is the behavior they really want to affect. So without any more introduction, let's just get right into it. Here's my interview with Prince Gooman and Matt Johnson, authors of Blindside. <laughs> well, uh, I this feels great. This is a great opportunity to nerd out on something that I'm obsessed with, that you're obsessed with. Uh, I read reading the book. I was like, yes, these are all the the heavy hitter studies that I like to talk about at parties, uh, and then a bunch of stuff I had never heard about before, and uh, I loved it. Uh, uh, it's got a lot of strong DNA with the whole "you are not so smart," you know, whatever mm-hmm. this thing is, brand universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would like if we could just start out talking about blindsight. I blindsight itself, which is a great way to sort of introduce sort of your, the theme or the motif or the, like the, the like the, the the heart of what you're trying to get across here. It's a great example, uh, and it's also one of the weirdest things ever. And if you've never been exposed to a blindsight experiment or seen someone in a video doing something, um, you start to really have one of those strange uh, zoom out your face and the background zooms in moments from like Jaws where you're like, what is, a, what is, how to, is this me too? And the answer is yes. So instead of stepping all over it, tell us a little bit about Blindside and what that actually is. Yeah. So Blindside's one of those really fascinating examples where our own subjective experience just belies a, a totally complex process. You open up your eyes and just the, the richness of the visual world just comes rushing in and it just seems so effortless. And then, you know, something unfortunately happens to the brain in the case of, of neuropsychological patients and it uh, tweaks their subjective experience and their behavior as it relates to, to vision. And it really makes us rethink how complicated vision actually is. And so blindsight is one of those examples. So from their subjective experience, from the blindsight patients, uh, they are completely blind. But what's really interesting is when they take a much more experimental look at the abilities of the blindsight patients, they actually exhibit a pretty impressive and, and sort of shockingly accurate uh, degree of behavior as it relates to visual input. So if you take a blindsight person and you put them in a room and you flash some lights up on the room, you ask them, well, how many lights flashed on the screen? It's like, all right, just humor me with a guess. And they're like, all right, seven. And whatever number they come up with, even though they have no idea where they got it from, it's just pulled, seemingly pulled out of a hat, it is staggeringly accurate. They've even done experiments where they'll sort of toss a baseball at a blindsight individual, they'll sort of snag it out of midair. And again, they have no idea why they can do this. And so it turns out that there are completely distinct pathways in the brain for conscious visual experience and unconscious visual experience. So blindsight is an example where there's selective damage just to our conscious visual pathways, which is why they report not being able to see anything, but yet there's still visual input that is able to influence and add important rich input that can influence behavior into the unconscious visual pathway. So typically, you know, these two streams are working together. We all have, you know, conscious, you know, visual information, unconscious, and it's just seamless. We never realize it. But blindsight is an example where it's it's uh, it's split, and they just have this unconscious influence. 
like I've seen where they they they'll walk down a hallway with obstacles and they'll avoid the obstacles. Uh, take a, a an envelope and put it into a slot, but subjectively in consciousness, there's not there's no perception of the vi- of visual inputs. But the brain is receiving the information and doing something with it. Which the overall thing that you're trying to get out of the book, if I'm if I'm hearing you correctly, is uh, this is happening at all all the time for everything, uh, not necessarily everything that's coming into us through all of our senses, or even things that are being processed internally are also being delivered up to conscious experience. And Freud was at least right about uh, some things. So uh, there are there's a lot of unconscious stuff happening. It's creepy and weird and it blows my mind, but it's also awe-inspiring and makes me feel like, you know, we will go to Jupiter, that sort of thing. Like it's all wrapped up in this, this for me, in a, something like Blindsight reveals how much is happening in this private universe, right? It, it really does. It's just yet another way to, you know, underline that all of our brains are receiving information all the time, whether we're consciously aware of it or not. And not only was it a very novel hook, but it also is not indifferent from when you plug that same brain into the consumer world, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, that that was our, our goal is, is introduce this uh, novel neuropsychological condition, but also connected to consumerism, right? For lack of a better term, connected to when we're going grocery shopping and we're ignoring, I'm using air quotes here, we're ignoring the logos that we, you know, saw on the Uber or on the on the subway ride over. But ultimately, you know, what we wanted to do was a, a different kind of blind sight is to actually be able to see this unseeable world, at least in the context of consumerism. And that's that was really the driving point behind the book is how can we make this stuff that is previously unseeable, bring it to light and ha- and contextualize why we wait for iPhones every single time and why our <laughs> iPhones, iPhone 12s right now are magically going to get more scratched because the 13 got announced this week and what have you. Right. And to really contextualize that stuff. Uh, there's one line in there that I've saved some stuff over here in some notes. The gap between objective reality and subjective perception is the marketer's playground. That's a good pull quote. There's this thing I was thinking about. There are two entry points. There's two things I really want to talk about with our time, and I'll try to bounce around all sorts of other stuff. One is, I cannot believe KFC put a dollar in the lettuce. (laughs) And the other is um, Pepsi. You talk about Pepsi as a logo, a brand, an idea. And I like this uh, sort of dorm room bong hit conversation potential of this, which is um, Pepsi doesn't exist really except as a subjective experience right uh in sort of the same way uh that truth or um uh beauty doesn't exist except as a subjective subjective experience and and i don't know there's all sorts of ways to go about it one way i like to think about it is uh if all the brains on earth stopped working all at once if whether we all died or we went into a a non-conscious coma There'd be no more Pepsi. It would just it would cease because it's 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 a subjective part. It's part of subjective reality, though the chemicals and the atoms and molecules of Pepsi would continue to exist because that's objective reality. So the idea that Pepsi is an idea means that it's part of our mental model, and the idea that we have mental models and that this is something that exists within subjective reality and we can have shared consensus realities leads to this playground you're talking about, this gap between objective and subjective reality. So, mm-hmm. um, which leads me to some people can be convinced, uh, some people uh, cannot differentiate dog food from pate. So if you could talk about that study and then just sort of run with it. <laughs> Man, I love all the connections you're, you're drawing there, David. Um, yeah, so let, let's start with the, uh, the pate. So uh, in the book, we introduced this concept, which um, originally comes from perceptual neuroscience and this observation that we don't really experience reality objectively. We experience our brain's mental model of it. So our, our brain is this fantastic uh, constructive machine. We're constantly building associations and building these estimations of what the brain thinks reality is. And uh, the actual sensory input uh, that we're receiving at any given time, that is input to this model. Uh, but this model is introduced by all sorts of different things. And uh, so we don't ever experience the world objectively. We just experience our brain's mental model. And we see this uh, really most profoundly in, in experiences of taste because taste, unlike vision, is really our weakest sense. So 
of course, we're getting some sensory input via tongue, gustatory system, et cetera. Uh, but so many other things can come in and influence that model because our, our mental model for taste is highly impressionable. And this leads me to the, the dog food study. So uh, they did this study where, uh, you know, it was in New York City and they said, oh man, there's all these Michelin star restaurants they are serving pate for $50 a plate. You know what? I think it's all just mental modeling. I think basically if you just recreate the visual aesthetic and you were to serve it on a plate with a nice little garnish, uh, we could actually get people to not be able to distinguish between actual dog food prepared that way and pate, which you'd ordinarily spend uh, you know, quite a bit of money on. So they had something like four different uh, pates. They had you know, liver, they had duck, they had all these different pates. Uh, and they prepared them all the same way, with the same visual aesthetic, and they had one that was dog food. And they blended it up, and they presented the same exact, you know, uh, visual presentation, and people could not tell the difference. <laughs> and it's just a very striking example of how easily our mental model can be tricked. Uh, you know, so every, you know, sort of time we're taking a bite of food, we're not actually eating the food. The food influences the mental model. Of course, it's not completely irrelevant. We're actually eating our brain's mental model. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, David, if you were just, you know, chowing down on some, some what you think is some delicious duck pate and said, David, David, no, no, don't take the next bite. It's actually dog food. You know, you'd experience that next bite very, very differently. And all that's changed is your belief about it. So uh, I think it's just a yeah, striking example of, of really the power of extrasensory factors to influence what we think are purely sensory experiences. Right. And to connect it and to connect it back to to what you were saying about Pepsi. By the way, uh, there were there were no bong rips involved in that day, in that pate. <laughs> uh, people were completely sober during that research. Now to connect it back to the Pepsi piece, David. You know what's funny? I think you underlined that really well. Is as far as all we know. Pepsi exists in our brain and it does. Pepsi is holding a real estate in our brains. And what's ironic with that Pepsi and Coke challenge run by Pepsi was that they learned that Coca-Cola owns a much larger plot of land in your brain, right? And and despite all the PR they did, and it was global, it wasn't just Southeast Asia or the US, it was everywhere. Like, hey, when we, again, we don't have to put people in an in, in a unconscious coma. They literally took the labels off and did a taste test and Pepsi tasted better. Put the labels back on and Coca-Cola tasted better. Mm-hmm. And that really is to, to, again, underline what you said earlier, that is the marketers and back extension, the brand's playground, the difference between objective and subjective. Mm-hmm. And, and ironically, even after Pepsi released all this stuff and did massive PR, people still more or less prefer Coca-Cola. So yeah, to, to go back to the podcast, yeah, we really are not that smart. Despite <laughs> knowing all that, we're not that smart. I think I were, uh, there's another run of that experiment. I think where they were, instead of putting Pepsi and Coke on the on the labels, they just put the letter a big letter P and a big letter Q. Like one one was P and one was Q. And like so, and like some people, I, I don't I don't remember which one it was if it was P or Q, but I know that one won out. Or like apparently one letter tastes better than the other. It, it's subject when we're That's trying why. to like ping or the associative architecture of the brain um the there's a you use an Alan watts quote and i'm never gonna i will never uh, avoid an opportunity or, or pass up an opportunity to throw in some Alan watts um the the name of the, the title of that chapter is eating the menu and, you, and the Alan watts uh quote is we eat the menu not the food so the the ambiance the presentation the 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 expectations that are set up, the uh, even like the how nice the wait staff is being, how well presented the menu is, all these things go into go into this experience. It's not just the taste. This, as, as to reiterate what you're saying, you're eating the experience, or as Watts would say, you're eating the menu, not the food. Um, so to toss it back to you, what? What do we know enhances this experience? If we're talking about starting at the level of of perception, and this is where you start in the book, you say like the same meal tastes very different eaten in an abandoned warehouse than in a decadent banquet hall. So uh, I'm thinking like ground up dog food presented well, not so bad, but then and then a fantastic meal eaten in a post apocalyptic hellscape doesn't taste quite as good. So and also I'm very fascinated by this idea that as you go up the hierarchy of percepts, like the Taste is weak, so taste is you can influence people's uh, perception of taste much more by influence by playing with all the other stuff that's in the model and focusing over there. 
Whereas if you had to deal with with a very strong percept, you'd have to have to work on other things. So just uh, give me an idea of like, what are we, so if you were trying to apply this to do things that are good and you're not going to use this to, to employ the dark arts, what would you, uh, how can you improve your, your uh, success in marketing and, and business and so on, knowing these things? And so, so Matt already outlined how vision is the strongest sense and, and taste is, is the weakest. So vision is the, is the short answer, one of the variables you can turn up, but I'll, I'll go a different route. Um, story. Uh, there is a essence of things that our brain is, again, sucking up all the patterns and the data points. And if you can create an essence, you can, they can, there's multiple variables you can create an essence around. The chef, the history, the actual food. Um, and, and a great example in my mind, uh, because I studied wine for a while, there's a story behind a bottle of wine, right? It, it, and we're not even getting into which glass is served in or any of that stuff. We're simply talking about the story. and. I can give you a glass of wine, Dave, and like, hey, this is a really nice Pinot, check it out, you know, taste it and whatever. And then I can say, hey, this is a really nice Pinot, it's called Samantha. It's called Samantha because the winemaker's oldest daughter hated Pinots. He could not get her to like Pinot Noir at all. So for her wedding, he created this Pinot and he was so convinced that she was gonna love it. And lo and behold, on her wedding night, on her wedding day, she loved the Pinot. And that's why this one's called Samantha. Now have a sip of it. There's no way you're not going to like that one more, right? Mm-hmm. Unless, unless, you, unless you have bad history with people named Samantha. That is one aspect, the storytelling aspect, right? Um, so that's one. Matt, did you want to add another one? Because I can keep going, but I'm sure you have one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, just to, just to reiterate what Pritch is talking about with the, the essence. So, I mean, we, we essentially see a hidden soul in the objects that we interact with. Mm. Um, so it's, it's a little bit of a, you know, a strange thing, but when we build attachments, when there's a, a history, when there's an origin story behind it, it ceases to just be the physical objects. So we see this with a range of items outside of, of food and restaurants. So this was, you know, the, the example that we brought in was the Banksy piece. When, uh, if you remember a couple of years ago, David, uh, Banksy had that, uh, you know, that, uh, performance art where he, you know, auctioned this, uh, piece of art off at Sotheby's and then, it immediately shredded. And uh, what was really interesting about it is the value of the piece actually went up. So the piece was actually physically destroyed. But as I mentioned earlier, we, we see the hidden soul in things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, and that hidden soul transcends the sort of physical qualities, the physical iteration of it. Uh, and so since we see these, these sort of hidden essence and what we interact with, uh, when this is applied to food, uh, one way to enhance the essence is to give it an origin source. Prince just gave the example of uh, Samantha's cab. Uh, there's been studies of it where you, you know, present a menu item and then the waiter comes around and says, well, this was the, you know, it was a dish inspired by, you know, the waiter's experience in Indonesia. We had to fend off pirates from this, and, you know, whatever story it is. Uh, it gives it this this background that then uh, then influences the mental model in a positive way. So yeah, uh, yeah another example of, of really how you know we don't just eat the actual items itself. We we eat the menu, we eat the context, we eat everything that we've come to believe uh, about what we're consuming. And this is such a a wonderful thing to remember about life itself. Like you are eating the menu at all times, in all categories, in all directions that you want to metaphorically look at that. Uh, which gives me joy sometimes and also pains me that I'm a big meat bag walking around in a bone mix. Uh, like I, you know, some, it depends on the day whether or not that gives me joy or fear. Uh, either way, it's existential dread. And sometimes I like existential dread. So that's strange, I guess. But uh, the. I mean, I hope, I hope there's some appreciation, though. Right? I know we're talking in the context of restaurants, but I hope there's some appreciation for uh, experienced designers who have internalized this. Mm at least to a degree where they're successful in their career, creating brand experiences or whatever you want to call them, that they've internalized this enough to actually intuitively bake this into experiences, whether it's a pop-up restaurant or a pop-up store, something, uh, you know, down to, you know, the colors that the waitstaff is wearing or the music or, you know, dining itself is a multi-sensory experience and that shouldn't surprise anyone here, but just how far that goes, right? And you're yeah. right that like you don't have to be sitting at a restaurant to eat the menu in your everyday life. And that really makes you think twice about your context, right? Like really, how are you, uh, what is the context you control? What is the context you don't control? Um, mm-hmm. Matt and I had, we tried to control as much context as we could when we we're writing the book. 
And uh, one of the things we did was we had this mutually curated playlist that we had in the background every time we sat down and wrote. And we wrote That's for great. hours and hours and hours. We also had a gajillion words that we had to cut down. So that mental model piece was definitely not a paragraph when it started. But 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 that the same, you know, and in that context, you can control that, right? And you can and you can sort of use the eating the menu habit of the brain to actually create context that can have a profound impact on on whatever behavior you want to amplify. And now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsors. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's, here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week, and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just, there's too many. You can't get to everything, and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution 
for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. talk about uh, a gorilla playing um uh in the air tonight uh, so i forgot about this until you mentioned it um in the book uh and then i rewatched it on youtube and it is one of those one of the great uh achievements of western civilization is that commercial <laughs> with the uh <laughs> because it's a really cool commercial like you it starts out with a, a slow pan across the room mm-hmm. and then it goes over the top of the head of something what is this oh it's a oh is this a gorilla and then it's a gorilla sort of taking a deep breath and thinking to itself and then it pulls back and the gorilla has got an earpiece in you're like what's going on then you uh, you're hearing in the air tonight start to play, and then it pulls back and he's at a drum set. And then when the drum solo kicks in, the gorilla plays the solo and like really plays the shit out of it. And then mm-hmm. it, at the, and at the end, and then at the end of all this, he goes Cadbury's. Like, <laughs> excuse me, excuse me. Um, well, this is a couple of years. This has been some years back when when it was sort of in the beginning, like when Skittles and other companies were doing absolutely bonkers advertising. And then at the end, they're like, "Oh, by the way, this was a Skittles ad." What I, what blew my mind about this when you talk about it is that this was uh, this they did this after a Salmonella outbreak, um, and they were like, "Here's how we get ahead of this. Let's do this crazy ad with a gorilla playing drums. This is what everybody will talk about." And that'll take up the mind share, I guess you could say. Um, but it, you use it as an example of something um, bigger, which is endogenous versus exogenous attention and um, how you can grab people's attention these ways, drop anchors and all sorts of stuff. If you could uh, tell me a little bit about how that relates to that. Yeah, so the uh, the, the science of what ultimately led to uh, the Cadbury gorilla, I think is pretty fascinating. So you mentioned... Endogenous, exogenous is sort of the two drivers of attention. So endogenous is, is, you know, you're going to the grocery store and you have a list and you're, you're specifically going to pay attention to things. You're going to look to things that are on your list and going to help you accomplish your goals. Um, if, you know, there was some crazy event that happened at the grocery store or some neon lights and something grabs your attention, that's exogenous attention. So endogenous stuff, these are things that are just goal-oriented that come from within, and there's a pretty good understanding now of what typically drives exogenous attention. It's things that are highly salient. What highly salient means, essentially, is that it violates our expectation. So if we go to the grocery store, we expect aisles of groceries, we expect friendly supermarket staff, et cetera. Um, Anything that is uh, incongruous to that is going to drive our attention. Uh, if you went to this grocery store and uh, it just so happens that everyone at this particular grocery store wears a gorilla suit, uh, you'd be shocked the first time, but you'd get used to it. And, you know, that wouldn't that wouldn't drive your attention. Just be like, hey, Bob. Hey, Marie. You know, just people in, in gorilla suits coming up and asking if you have questions about groceries. So it's really the violation of expectation that's going to drive our attention. We're really attracted to new things, uh, things that uh, are, are sort of out of bounds with our expectations. So this was sort of the, the background going into the Cadbury Gorilla. So Cadbury storied uh, UK brand, very regal, purple is their uh, sort of dominant color. And I don't know about you guys, but you know, when I associate things like regal, you know, storied British brand, probably the last thing that comes to mind is a big 400 pound gorilla tack on to that, the air of the night. I mean, there's just, you, you couldn't, you know, possibly expect that. Um, and, and so this was fantastic, if nothing else, at, at really driving our attention. 
there might be, you know, a few brands where it'd be like, oh yeah, there's just a gorilla playing, you know, the, the drums and, and that's sort of in line with what you'd expect for that brand, but not for, for Cadbury. And I think the, you know, the really interesting point which drives this home for Cadbury is that it was such a hit, right? So this was amazing. You know, everyone was talking about it. You know, the Salmonella outbreak, that was old news because everyone was obsessed with this, you know, wonderfully creative, shocking, exogenously attention-driven uh, gorilla playing the drums. Like, let's do it again. And so they rolled out the ad, you know, three months later, and it was a gorilla, you know, playing some other Phil Collins song at the airport. And it was like, saw it coming a mile away. Yeah, Cadbury gorilla, done. No violation of expectations. So uh, I think it's a beautiful illustration of, of really how our attentional system works. I mean, it, it kind of <laughs> makes you appreciate what Skittles did in the same era, though, right, David? Because they, unlike Cadbury, they constantly did newer versions that were quirky, but they'd hook you in a very obscure way. And then of course ends with Skittles. And uh, it, it just, it was just a fun, fascinating era of advertising. And I think, you know, I, I, Matt and I are just big stand-up comedy and basketball nerds. So we can connect most things to stand-up comedy or basketball. And, 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 uh, and in the book, we talk, uh, we talk about the Shakespeare of stand-up who is constantly, constantly delivering unexpected punchlines, even though his entire. Oh yeah, that's right. Jeselnik. Right. Yeah. Anthony Jeselnik and his entire shtick for, he's been doing this for over 15 years now has been premise weird premise and a shocking punchline. So you're mm -hmm. sitting here watching this guy 75 minute set and you're, you know, what's happening. The fans have been following him for years. You know, what's coming next. And yet he still manages to hit really high on the shock scale. And that is so hard to pull off. Like Cadbury couldn't do it consistently. Skittles did it consistently. And they had an entire team and a, and an ad agency to make it happen. And this is one person writing his own jokes, doing it for 15 years. Yeah. And that was just so fascinating. That Jess has made an entire career out of uh, what we call N400. N400 for the, for the listeners, N400 is, if you were to measure using neuroimaging techniques, how surprised you are. Like uh, at the end, when it's a reveal that Cadbury comes at the end of the, uh, the gorilla, that would be, score really high on N400. And Anthony Jeselnik is an N400 master of public speaking. And we just, we can't get enough of that example because it's such a great example. That's a good example. I like that. How does this relate, but how does this relate to MSRPs though? That's the thing that, uh, that uh, uh, I love that you, you, you uh, pivot over to this and, and it, it goes, it falls right into it nicely. Tell me a little bit about MSRPs. Well, MSRPs are uh, anchor devices. When our brains are having trouble adding some form of value to something, especially monetary value, an anchor is going to be the first thing your brain thinks about, right? So if you anchor the price at, you know, $800 for a leather motorcycle jacket and then and then cross it off and it's on sale for $250, well, you're anchored at the $800, you get $250. Uh, the case study that was so telling about this, and again, this goes back to you are not that smart, <laughs> uh, is JCPenney. JCPenney poached... Um, one of the uh, the retail chiefs from Apple, right? And they and, and JC Penney uh, is known, right? It's, it's an American brand, but they're known for always being on sale. I think it was over 95% of their revenue comes from sale items. What does that tell you? Stuff is always on sale, mm -hmm. right? And uh, the new executive uh, came in and he said, hey, we're not going to do fictional pricing. We're not going to do this anchoring. And we are actually going to drop the prices. Those are going to be everyday prices. And the sale price is the everyday price and occasionally we'll run sales. It'll actually be cheaper, right? It'll actually be cheaper than the previous sale price. They did an entire PR thing around it. They rebranded the company around it and no one bought, right? <laughs> that is a hyperbole, but let's just say the sales dropped, right? So even if they're going out of their way, same like, just like Pepsi, like, Hey, we are no longer practicing fictional pricing. This is the real price and it's lower than what we did previously for sale pricing. No one bought. He left, got his got his severance, and they went back to the old way, and then sales went right back up, right? Wow. And you see this, you see this conversely on the other side as well, right? So you've got JCPenney, Old Navy, they're, they're always on pricing, always on sales pricing. And then you have Macy's who 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 kind of play with uh, seasonal pricing, right? So the same, the same Ralph Lauren suit uh, is not always on sale, but it's on sale consistently throughout the year. And then compare that to a to a Cartier or a Burberry where they never go on sale. Mm -hmm. And in fact, they've come, come under a lot of flame recently because if it doesn't sell at the end of the season, they don't outlet it. They just literally burn 
leftover inventory to maintain the high perceived value of their products, wow. right? So you've got JCPenney, Old Navy here, and then you've got, you know, Burberry's and Cartier's of the world here. Again, they're, they're playing with anchoring in the same way. One of them is anchoring it so high, they never want people to access their stuff cheaper, even if it means losing money, right? They'd rather burn their inventory. And the other ones are just like, yeah, Old Navy has an outlet, which is funny, right? Because you've got a discount always on sale brand now has an outlet for stuff that didn't sell. All because our brains anchor to the MSRP and the MSRP is important, as fictional as it may be. And as transparent as executives can be about the fictionality of it. They burn their stuff. That feels like blood diamond-y kind of things. Okay. That, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's that's weird, dude. Um it's so weird. Uh, uh, okay. I mean, but hey, that uh, that's just uh, the way I look at it. <laughs> I'm sure there are very fine people make that make a fine product. Uh the there's another thing that happens here, and I, I love putting this out to people. This is one of the like most annoying things I do is is when I've spot a Goldilocks. Thing. If you could talk about the Goldilocks bias, I love this. I see it everywhere. Cable companies do it. Ice cream sale. Everybody does this. This is it always works, but it's sort of a variation of anchor. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, really, really common as you as you mentioned, David. So it's sort of a variation of this this kind of decoy effect. Um, so one of my favorite examples of this comes from a, a study done by uh, Bob Cialdini back in the '80s, I think it was, and it was the the menu study. And he went into a, a restaurant and he had them participate in this, this piece of research. And they came up with two uh, very similar but slightly tweaked menus. They were identical. All the things on the menu were the same price. It was like $25 for a mignon. It was like $12 for a burger, pretty reasonably priced uh, items. One menu, though, had a, another item which came first in the menu that the other menu didn't have. And that was you could buy a Maserati for $300,000. And so they you know, distributed these menus at the restaurant. Everybody who was in the Maserati group, they're like, I came here for a bur- I don't want a Maserati. Nobody bought the Maserati. But what was really interesting is the Maserati group ended up spending much more money. They were more likely to buy filet mignons. They bought more drinks. They bought more items. Uh, they were much more loose with their money. And this comes back to the anchoring effect. This comes back to the decoy effect. So everything looks cheaper if it's relative to three hundred thousand uh, dollars. So Prince said it earlier that our our mindset of look for a benchmark, to look for an anchor. Our brains are really bad at trying to establish objective value. Uh, and, uh, so when we're trying to operate under instances of uncertainty, uh, these anchors can, uh, really, uh, bias our decision-making. So everything is, is sort of relative to something else. And in this case, it was relative to this completely arbitrary anchor. Nonetheless, regardless of, of how arbitrary it was, it influenced their, uh, their, their purchasing. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's really, really common uh, technique. Uh, before I knew about this, I thought it was just like every uh, restaurant has something that's very expensive on the menu is because I think they I was thinking they're, they're going after whales. You know, they're going after people who are like, I want to show my friends how much money I've got. But the actual value of having a decoy item in your menu is that it makes everything else seem reasonable by comparison. Or if you do that one, two, three thing where you like you have, here's this option that costs this. Here's the second option that costs this. Uh, but you know, if you got them both, you could be probably you could save some money. Like, like I love when this is done. I, I love that Apple is not above doing this. But also, like your cable company will say, you can get cable, or you can get cable plus, uh, or you can get internet, mm-hmm. roughly the same, or cable and internet for this price, which is a little bit higher than what than both. But hey, you're getting both. The New York Times will do this. They'll say like, you can get the newspaper, or you can get the yeah. or you can get the website, or you can get the newspaper and the website. And you know, if they had offered you a newspaper website at this at this price point without first giving you these two other things to compare it to, you get a lot less, you know, uh, buy-in on that, which I think is, it's incredible. And, you know, I mean, the, the Maserati example might seem so obscure, but just remember, we see this often in, in, in cars. Uh, they've been doing that for the German car manufacturer. have been doing that for years where you can get yourself a, you know, a Mercedes E350. Um, but then if you want it with white paint, here's, here's another 500 bucks. And you're like, well, why, there's no option for a paintless car, right? So it's not like I can go, ah, I can bypass that option. But the $500 color option is just step one. What is a $2,000 tech package or all season package when you're already paying 50 grand for a Mercedes, right? Because you're anchored at the 50, 50 grand base price. 
And similar to what you're saying about Apple is, yeah, sure, they, they try to do Goldilocks, but what they do even better than Goldilocks, I would say, is the fact that, ooh, iPhone 13 starts at 700 bucks or iPhone 12 starts at 700 bucks, but it's 64 gigabytes, right? So you're anchoring, uh, you're anchoring there, but you also have product, you also have other uh, sources of revenue off the same product. And the, the German car manufacturers do it so well. And now you see it often. Now you see the Lexuses and the Acuras of the world do it. And you even see the baseline brand car brands do it as well. And again, it's using the anchor of the baseline price. And then, you, and then you know, what's what's a $10,000 option when your car is 70 grand Mercedes or BMW? I want to talk about two other things because we're going to run out of time because I'm, I, I can't help but nerd out on these stuff. And I love talking about it. Uh, there are two other things I want to talk about before we get out of here. One is um, uh, autoplay and how that may have led to the insurrection. And, uh, and maybe the downfall of democracy itself. And, um, and the other is this KFC dollar bill in the lettuce, uh, which blows my mind. Okay. Uh, starting, we'll get to the KFC thing last. Um, so you, you have a bit of the book talking about impulse buying, uh, low K high K sales tactics. And, uh, that we can talk about that, but you also talk about autoplay. Uh, and I, I think I'd forgotten that autoplay is not, is, is a recent invention that this wasn't always in our lives that after you finished a YouTube video, you had to go, well, what else am I going to look at? I mean, the auto, uh, Matt, you can jump in whenever you want. I mean, the autoplay, it is feeding into the algorithm, right? Because it isn't just the fact that it's on autoplay is going to keep you on the platform longer, right? So YouTube, that means eyeballs for the ads that interrupt your content, but they all, they're not just measuring how many videos you watch autoplay. It's how you completed them. Right. So, you know, you can watch, you know, uh, uh, the Charlie, the Charlie baby video. And if you don't watch the next video, then then they know that that was not of interest. And that's a boom. That's a data point. One thing that does not get talked about enough, David. And I think uh, luckily this was there was only one example of this is um, I don't know if you're a fan of Black Mirror. Uh, oh, yeah, of course. Every 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 year that passes, I, I feel like we're living in an episode of Black Mirror. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But there was a standalone Black Mirror movie. That was a Netflix exclusive that came out. I think it was called Bandersnatch. Um, it was a choose your own adventure. Movie, yeah. Choose your own adventure, like old school goosebumps, but 2020 or 2019 version. Think about that for a second. Not only are they looking at, oh, yeah, you watch this reality show so that you might like this other reality show that's about sailing. Now you're actually picking in the movie what you want to happen next. And that's being put into an Excel sheet. In essence, right? So if, if David is watching this movie and 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 in this movie, this guy gets punked at a bar, and now you have to decide to either click to walk away or click to punch this dude in the face, that's being tabulated, right? So we're, now we're getting to understand, at least initially, what your reaction is, which is just, again, the irony and the meta aspect of that is like you're watching a Black Mirror episode and you're literally living the Black Mirror you're life. Li- <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Charlie and, Brooker, you madman. That's fascinating, right? We we didn't talk about this in the book, but it, it's it's such a trip because you can pick and choose, and that's being c- collected as a model for your behavior. That is you know? amazing. But also, you're talking about things being salient and being surprised. You mentioned you st- you talk in the book about how it the reason you'll let that autoplay roll out is because you already have established that this is a risk free, familiar experience for you, and so to roll off the next uh, episode, fine. But, and after that happens, you have to deal with uh, the Zignaric or Zignaric effect. Um, yeah. I had a I had a person who works in video games on the show once, and they talked about that this is something they put that this is purposely placed inside video games because once you start a quest, you're lo- you're likely to finish it. If I give you a bunch of quests, yeah. you're gonna be playing this game for a while. If I give you bunches of mm-hmm. fetch quests and all on and on, this is how you can put somebody in a loop. Mm-hmm. What blows my mind is that you and I'd never thought about this before, but you talk about how the news feed. In everything, whether it's TikTok, there's scrolling forever, or Instagram, or Twitter, mm-hmm. or Facebook, is kind of an example of this. Tell me what you mean by that. Yeah, so the so in tech it plays out a lot, right? So the Zignaric effect is a sense of unfinishedness. So if I were to stop my sentence right here and never complete it, you're going to be more engaged. It might not be a pleasant engagement, but you're going to want to know what's going to come next, right? If I just literally stop right here, that's the Zignaric effect. And what David, you're talking about is, is if you think about uh, scrolling, the doom scroll, right? Why is it the doom scroll? Because there is no end to it. And it's not just the end. There aren't any milestone markers, right? So if, if Facebook wanted to fix digital addiction, uh, addiction, one of the things they could do immediately is put milestone markers. Hey, you've swiped 10 times. Ready to stop? 
no, okay, keep going. But the fact that there are no milestones, there isn't a sense of finishness, it keeps you engaged longer. And that, that, and that of course, contextualizes autoplay. It contextualizes how we are living life with uh, multiple feeds at a time. Um, and yeah, that's, that's the Zignaric effect. This reminds me of something that I think about all the time with social media is they could give you all the things that they have on their end if they wanted to. They could show you all, everything that you're doing. They could you get complete, amazing feedback on your experience. And you could just say, you know what? I'd like to blow in my feed one of these milestone things. That'd be fun. But there's a reason why some things are available to you and some things aren't. And I think that's all a decision that is being made on the other side of the experience. And the fact that you could have milestones, but don't, or you could have a system where you could opt in or out of something like that, but don't says something about the fact that this is a curated experience for you and your brain. Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, I mean, we're lucky that there's at least hidden inside the option menu and the sub menu and the sub menu, sub sub menu is a way to turn off autoplay, right. Or post play what Netflix calls it and YouTube's autoplay. There isn't really an option to turn on milestones on IG or TikTok. Hey, the last thing I want to talk about is this KFC thing. Okay. So I love the idea of subliminal marketing. Um, I remember as a kid, my dad trying to tell me about subliminal marketing and he told me about a story you talk about in the book, which is um, the idea that there was a movie theater and they would like flash popcorn and then people would want more popcorn. Uh, and as it turns out, I'll, I'll pass the story on to you. Go ahead. Go ahead, Matt. Yeah. So this is the uh, sort of the famous allegory, James Vickery. So uh, he wanted basically his his movie theater to, to gain some salience, to gain some attention. So what he told people uh, and, and what he leaked to the press is that he engaged in subliminal marketing. So what he told uh, uh, the press is that in the middle of a movie, uh, I just spliced Coke, popcorn, and people just basically beelined it to the aisles. And it's been sort of passed down through the years, the decades, uh, so much so that a lot of people think the story is true, not true, but it does inspire our thinking about subliminal marketing, especially going back to, to how we first started this conversation, David, in terms of, of visual input that can uh, not necessarily broach conscious awareness, but can still be assimilated by unconscious pathways and influence thoughts, emotions, and behavior, which essentially is the study of subliminal influence. And so it's, it's really an empirical question. Can visual input, and it's primarily studied in the visual domain as opposed to other sensory inputs, can visual domain uh, actually have this, this kind of influence? And it turns out the answer is yes, though there is a caveat. So it's been studied experimentally. If you bring people into a lab and you have them do you know, a very simple, boring task, is this a capital B or is this a, uh, a lowercase b for hours and hours and hours, and then you just flash you know, Coke logo or a Lipton logo, they are more likely to go for the Coke when you offer them a beverage after the experiment's over, uh, but only if they're already thirsty. So it's not as if, you know, you, you splice something in the middle of a, uh, you know, a visual experience faster than our conscious visual system can pick up on. And they just like beeline it like an automaton to, you know, 7-Eleven and, and buy whatever that is. But if you already have some sort of leaning or some sort of inclination towards, you know, that, that general thing, it'll sort of nudge you slightly in the direction of, of one refreshment after another. So it does, in fact, have some effect, but the effect sizes are, are relatively small. Uh, I think the bigger lesson from subliminal marketing is, is not so much what they can do or what they cannot do, but is the kind of marketing which I think is, is sort of the close cousin of subliminal advertising, which is mid-liminal advertising. This is great. Mid-liminal marketing, mid-liminal <laughs> advertising. Add this to your vocabulary, everyone listening to this, because you have experienced it. I love this. Continue, please. <laughs> we spent days coming up with that term, by the way. So, so subliminal, at least in the visual domain, if it's faster than 50 milliseconds, you're not going to consciously perceive it, right? So all subliminal tests are, are faster than that. Midliminal is hiding in plain sight. It is, it is, uh, you can call it a prime. It is, it is midliminal priming that is sitting in plain sight. However, you don't, you're not consciously aware of it. Mm -hmm. So think about all these influences, the influencer culture that's popping off, right? And think about the mega celebrities in this case. Jay-Z and Beyonce had a photo of their trip in Cuba and in the corner was a bottle of Corona. You may not have consciously been aware of them sitting next to the stair set, the staircase for the bottle of Corona. You're just looking at Jay and Bay, right? But little do you know that, that again, you're, you're, you're eating the menu here, right? Like your brain has 
some way, shape, or form picked up that Corona bottle. Right. And, 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 and think about how often that happens. And then KFC, they had a product called Snacker, which was a dollar fried sandwich. It was small. It was it was handheld and they, you know, uh, on brand advertising for KFC. But at the end of it, when you have that big, juicy close up headshot of the of, of the sandwich, you actually stuck a dollar bill in there because it was a dollar and you don't actually pick it, pick it up typically consciously. But there it is sitting there speaking to your brain liminally. There's a link in your your book in the notes. Like and I, and yeah. I, I saw it was a YouTube link. It's like, you got to be kidding me. I clicked on it right here, just the, just like earlier today. And uh, I watched this ad and then it does one of these creepy zoom ins. And I'm like, it's plainly there. There is a dollar in the lettuce. <laughs> oh, man. And I love that oh, blows God, my mind. So now, here's some other stuff related. Like uh, mid-liminal... As far as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I mean, that's the music playing in the background. That's the scent experience that, like, I, I, I remember going to uh, to a meeting once, that, and it smelled very nice there. And the person at the meeting was like, yes, we have a, an odor artist who is who's part of this experience. I'm like, wow, you can get it. Like, like, they really had, like, crafted what they wanted their experience to be in a meeting space to smell a certain way. You talk about how, like, Cinnabon... Like they, they find where they want to be in their like physical locations and malls so that they can get you a sort of an odor bubble. So that, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you know, they've, they've done these tests as well, right? They've done, um, you know, they, they put people, they put subjects in a room and Hey, eat this cookie and go home. That's more or less the test. But one of the rooms has a citrus scent and the other one doesn't. And people in the room with the citrus scent eat the cookie more neatly. And they've actually practiced, they've, they've done this with video gamers as well, the high school age, where you have one room, they're playing video games, and they kind of see how well they're performing on this video game. And in the other room, there's a peppermint smell, and the peppermint smell gets them to play better, more accurate, more hits, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. It's wild. I mean, you said earlier, you're a watch guy. Did you know about the 1010 thing? before? I, I did know about it, but it, please tell the world. Uh, so Every watch ad you see, whether it's video, print ad, or a billboard, the time is going to be 10-10, plus or minus a minute. And the and the business reason for that is you've got to show off the, you know, uh, whatever it is, Rolex, uh, the brand name and the, and the model name that is typically above the complication, right, where the needles stick out, the, the core of the needle. And, but obviously, it doesn't take a genius to figure out. There's many times you can show on the watch where you can still have the space to show the logo and the sub-brand. Uh, and why is it always 10-10? Turns out, mid-liminally, uh, the hands represent a smile at 10-10. Because if you went the other way around, it's a frown, right? So, and that is, again, there have been studies on that that show, again, it's not going to completely go mind control. And, oh, now I have to buy a $20,000 Rolex because I, because it has 10-10 represents a smile. But you are, it is, again, feeding into, mid-liminally, it's feeding into the mental model of this brand and this watch that, that does have some impact down the line. I love that you created this term because this is something I've loved. I've talked about forever. Mid-liminal is now the way I can talk about it because um, what's important for people listening is that you don't have to have designed this from the bottom up. Like you can just be running a business and you're A-B testing what works and what doesn't. And you will stumble into these things because you tried all sorts of other watch phases. And this, it, and this one is the one that gives you the most like sales. Mm-hmm. So that's how it ends up looking the way it looks. Now you don't you might not even know as the person creating this why that's true. It just doesn't matter. That's giving you the results you are. You try out a bunch of different smells, this one works. You try out a bunch of different colors, these work. The world eventually becomes shaped by the by our minds, but uh, but the consumer is sort of voting with their mid-liminal con- uh, conscious processing of the information. Yeah. Like absolutely. Casinos tune every you know you have to tune every machine to the same note. Otherwise, you get this mm-hmm. disharmonic weirdness. Now, you don't have to do that, but it turns out casinos that do that have a better experience because it isn't a cacophony of madness in there, unless that's what you're marketing. And uh, oftentimes, if I'm correct, they tune it to C. Uh, I don't know if, if C is better than A, B, or, any, or G, or whatever, but that tends to be the right. one that they've hit on. I'm assuming it's because you that's the one that seems to work out best. Not that they did hired a psychologist to come in, but that's the one that seemed to do better. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but I, I do know that they make sure that there is no disharmony among the slot machines. Uh, casinos are such a fascinating study of creating a mid-liminal experience, right? Like you've got, yes, you've got the, uh, the machines tuned in to always stick to a key or a note. You also have smells. There is, it's just called a general pleasant scent is how it's what it's labeled and whether you're 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 in uh in, in china or you're in vegas or in atlantic city you'll notice a lot of these 
big name, big brand casinos have a similar smell because that particular smell has been tested. People spend more time at the machine, but they also spend more money at the machines. Um, but th there's no clocks there. Why would I want to remind you of what time it is, right? And you may or may not uh, consciously notice that, but it's all part of this design that ultimately leads to uh, business end goals. And, and, I, and I think you're absolutely right. And I think what Matt said is totally true is like, Yes, a lot of these experienced designers did innately discover this. And, and as marketers, and me being a marketer, we, we think we're scientific by, by thinking about A-B tests, which is one feature we've stolen from the scientific world, right? But ultimately, not a lot of marketing teams understand the neuroscience behind it, right? So that, there's that. Like They've A-B tested their way to all these great experiences, and, and, and they've created billion-dollar brands out of it, but not all of them understand the underpinnings. Right. So imagine if middle liminal was more popular, then you actually come up with smarter A-B tests to start with outside of red add to cart button or blue add to cart button. Right. Then you can actually get deeper with the initial test, the hypotheses to begin with. And I'm hoping that leads to a better experience for people, not just in a creepy, I'm going to make you do stuff you don't want to do way, but in a, in a better experience and a mutually agreeable sort of consumer marketing experience way, because ultimately if we're being honest with ourselves, we like being charmed as consumers, right? We have more choice than we have needs to fulfill. So, hey, game on brands, you need to try harder for you to earn my $100 for a pair of sneakers. That That is really the, the, the big point of the book, right? So obviously we reveal a lot of the things marketers do on purpose, but some of those are accidental, right? But ultimately we don't really want to go and, and, and patronize and point a finger at marketers because ultimately we have to own our own love for products as well and brands as well, right? So I'm hoping the book actually leads you to be more of a connoisseur of sorts. Like you pick and choose the restaurants and you appreciate the effort a restaurant picks, puts in. You appreciate the German music at a German wine store. Yes, sure, it's going to make you buy German wine more, but ultimately, hey, thank you for going through the effort, right? Like it's thank you for trying as opposed to just Bam, not trying very much. And I think, and I think if we can have that sort of a handshake between marketers and people who buy their products, I think that's a that's that's a society I'm more likely, more, more happy to live in than than some of the more manipulative stuff that typically gets most of the attention. What do you hope people get from this book? And um what do you what do you see as as the future of all of this? I guess that's sort of a combined question. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, I think. I, my hope for it is that people really develop a, a healthier relationship with marketing. So unless you're a, you know, a druid or a hermit living out in the middle of the, uh, the woods, uh, you know, you're a consumer. Uh, Prince is a marketer, but he's also a consumer. We're all consumers. And so uh, as soon as we, you know, accept that, uh, I think we have to realize that the cure for bad marketing isn't no marketing, it's better marketing. And I think when marketing works well, it does create... Uh, value and it does create things that we can appreciate above and beyond the raw utility of the products that we use. Going back to uh, what you were talking about earlier, David, where uh, Pepsi, Coke, these, these massive brands, they don't exist anywhere per se. They exist in the ether. They exist as constructs engraved in our temporal lobes. Uh, and just because they're constructs, they're social constructs, doesn't make them any less valuable. It's a real thing that people really like Coke. They really enjoy drinking Coke when they think it's Coke. When they think it's Coke, they enjoy it more than Pepsi. And uh, th there's something to be said for that. I don't think that enjoyment is any less real uh, just because it comes from a construct. Many of the things that we enjoy most in our lives uh, gain their value exactly this way. Money is a social construct. Money is a convention. If we're on a, a desert island uh, together and I've got a pocket knife and you've got $500 who's richer in that instance you know the dude with the pocket knife so it, it gains its value from the, the social conventionalization of it and brands are exactly the same way so I think there's a lot that, uh, that, that happens in marketing that's worthwhile of uh, ethical consideration but a lot honestly that we should grow to appreciate and uh, I think that's, that's my personal hope for people who read the book That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about, head to youarenotsosmart.com. For all the past episodes, go to Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Omni, Spotify, or youarenotsosmart.com. Follow me on Twitter at David McCraney. Follow the show at NotSmartBlog. We're also on Facebook slash youarenotsosmart. And if you would like to support this 
operation, make it better, help pay for transcription and other features, go to patreon.com slash you are not so smart. Pitching in at any amount gets you the show ad free, but the higher amounts get you posters, t-shirts, signed books, and other stuff. The opening music, that's Clash by Caravan Palace. And this music is by Banjo Apocalypse. The book in this episode was Blind Sight. Tell everyone you know about this show. That's the best way to support it. Just tweet one time about an episode that really struck you as, okay, this is something other people should know about. And check back in about two weeks for a fresh new episode. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.